0: Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung, And Val Matthews. Innate construction software transforms the way owners, contractors, and engineers manage projects and programs. With Innate, you get an integrated project controls platform that solves challenges in every phase of the capital project lifecycle. These are field-tested solutions that give stakeholders the information they need to minimize risk, improve operational efficiency, and control project costs. Innate, transforming the way the world builds. Learn more at innate.com, that's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. Project Chatter is sponsored by JustDo.com. JustDo.com is a cutting edge next-gen project management portfolio platform which doesn't force you into a project structure or hierarchy. Think of it as the Minecraft of project management systems with integrated task-based chat, Gantt, Kanban and much more. It's the only 21st century real-time platform available today.
1: In this week's pod, we were joined by Tony Welsh to discuss the five levers, although I think I said levers, for change. Uh, Following a career at the Royal Navy, Tony has had a wide and varied career in industry rooted in project controls, assurance, and program management. He has operated at the senior executive level and has a track record of business, program turnarounds, transformational change, and performance improvement. Military and civilian careers have provided business, profit, and loss, and program management experience in defense and aerospace, information technology, systems, and transportation expectation that was a big session uh man how how did you find it
2: yeah really enjoyed it it was great to for tony to share some of his vast experiences as you read out in the bio there Uh, we talked about some really interesting subjects around ways of working um learning and development needs across multinational organizations and um things around the the five levers for for change um that he'd identified within his organization how about you val Mm. What, what were your main takeaways from it
1: yeah, I love the idea of um, his his TTI. I won't re- review or reveal uh, the acronym, but also you know empowering people. Uh, his view on that was really interesting, and I think um, you know given COVID and how that's affected the way we work and projects, and and how we need to kind of respond to that, which is really really interesting. Yep definitely it's um yeah fascinating topic <laughs> long pause tells you how interested martin is in this but he is it's a great uh, great episode so folks sit back relax and uh, enjoy the pod hello project people welcome back to a brand new episode of the project chatter podcast it's always good to have you with us and we don't have dale tonight because well he needs a day off and uh, let's be honest we're getting to that silly season of christmas and this will be one of our last 2022 podcasts. I'm very excited to introduce our guest. Before I do, how are you, Martin? You well? Yeah, very good. Good to have you back. Yes, it's good to be back. I feel refreshed after a few weeks off. Watching, <laughs> I, I listened to some of your podcasts actually with, with uh, Dale. I felt like you don't need me anymore. I can probably retire, uh, really? but uh, it was, there were was some really good guests. I, I enjoyed them, actually. Uh, we've got another good guest, and Dale's going to miss out today. Uh, Tony Welsh, how are you, mate?
3: I'm good. Yeah, glad to be here thanks
1: guys no it's our pleasure as um as as ex talus peeps we uh we've we've heard of your name but uh, we've never actually met formally so this is a great way to to do that and um and talk about your experiences and and i love this this topic in particular because i think it affects all projects um, at all levels uh but before we get into the detail tony like you've got a quite a distinguished career in talus i'd love to hear about how you got into projects and where it all started for you
3: um, yeah. Okay. That's yeah, going back 20, 26 years after a career in the Navy. I, uh, I, I, stumbled, I stumbled into, um, actually risk management to start with. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, risk management working on a customer friend basis to ukraine KMOD, um, but found that I couldn't do risk management without a better understanding of, um, the what what is this big program at the time what was the common new generation frigate program then became the type 45 destroyer today um what what's the program how do i you can't understand risk unless you understand the program um getting into planning suddenly found myself falling into uh, into deeper project controls um, a big relaunch of that program into the type 45 destroyer and colleagues, colleagues with similar accents to your own Val arriving from, from Australia to help uh, one of the first joint MOD and industry programs establish proper project controls and pull through learning from what was then the Hawk lead-in fighter program for BA systems, um, where payment by earned value was one of the first in the UK. Mm. That's how I got into project controls. Um, Thereafter, there's a a history of moving from um, either large program, complex setup, or in most cases, fixing stuff, fixing big problems. Um, So um, I I ended up involved with some some large complex defense aerospace programs with BA systems, then more latterly. moved away from defence and aerospace into global ITIS transformation in Fujitsu services for a couple of years before I joined TALIS Transport 2011, which certainly had some challenges, um, the legacy of which you got involved in as I was leaving transport in the UK um, uh, with the, the with the London Underground stuff, the way you were working for Andy Bell and so I did a tour of duty with the, with the TALIS group in France as VP Bids and Programmes, um, which was an extremely interesting time, inheriting a, a French team um, and not being a fluent French speaker. Um, was a good challenge for a few years, but thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and, uh, and then came back to help a, a, a program in distress in defense in the UK in early 19 so it's been a um intersp- And all of that's been interspersed with uh general management so business management jobs as well as um a- ever increasing levels of responsibility on on program recovery and delivery mm-hmm. and so project book project controls and assurance um has been a thread throughout whether it's been part of a job or or the total focus, and um, to get to get things done and re- and or repaired. Yeah, that's significant. I, I actually realised we
1: had the same start in uh, in projects where I was ex-navy, and my first job was was actually going into Palace Australia at the time on an FFG upgrade program. Very very similar. Yeah. Uh, but I don't have obviously twenty years, so I'm not <laughs> that old yet. I'm getting there though with these yeah. these these great projects that uh, that TALIS does does do around the world. Um, how's your French, by the way?
3: Is it good now? Uh, it's, it's not great. Never became fluent. <laughs> and everybody wanted to learn English. So, uh, <laughs> of course I did. We had some fun. It became good enough to deliver some videos and sit through some French meetings and understand enough about what was going on. But I never became fluent. So, oh, that's very good.
1: Well, yeah. just in case we've got Martin, our translator, he's pretty good at French, I hear. Uh, um, but look, let's get into this subject matter now. This is an extension of Steve Wake's very famous EVA event, uh, EVA twenty-seven. I believe you attended with Dale, yeah. and uh, there was a presentation around the five levers, levers for change. I think you said in disruptive times. Is that correct?
3: That's right. Yeah. Yep.
1: And this was really just an analysis on the PMI uh, survey, or was it the Pulse of Professionals or Pulse in Professionals? Yeah. Yeah, PMI. And, uh, and and you took some some insights out of that.
3: Mm. I, I I took some um I took some insights out of that in in the sense of um, it it was coincident with um some tasking given to me in, in Tally's group at the time to to undertake quite a, a very broad and deep analysis working with not not just from a BMP perspective working with um, our main operational delivery functions so engineering and procurement quality um mm-hmm. Uh, even under go-to-market guys as well Um, a very very broad and deep analysis of um, what our competitiveness drivers were Um, and five levers for change in in actually it was turbulent times was the was the original um, title of the analysis um, uh, that led to led to one of four transformational programs that the group drove and it's continues to drive today um in 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 a, in a more recent manifestation of it um, but the five levers for change came out of the findings because we there were a surprising number of the issues that we needed to address or areas for improvement were not associated with tools and process 80 um, percent of the things that we were that we identified that we could improve we could see significant improvements in were either cultural, behavioural, or or associated with the organisational dynamics in a very, very complex global organisation. So that's where the five levers came from.
1: Mm-hmm. And just for the audience, is is it? Um, can you go through those five five levers just quickly?
3: Yeah, just very quickly with a brief brief description of each. Um, so the first. Um, was what we refer to as anticipation and continuity. So that was really focused on how you strengthen the end-to-end management. And what I should say prompted by that is that that, this analysis recognized that um, it's not just about the execution phase of the life cycle. We went very, very broad, uh, and and deeply into everything from the left hand end of the cycle, the, the glimmer of an opportunity, through its through its capture and working with you working with customers to understand what they need, um, mm. the decisions to bid, framing the bid, getting all the way through that process and and into the into the delivery, because we also determined that um, the vast majority of our problems in delivery were rooted in the left hand edge of the life cycle so anticipation and continuity was the was number one to reflect that left to right strength strengthening the end to end management focusing and investing more in the upstream phases left shifting and then making driving as hard as you can to get in ensuring uh, continuity along the life cycle mm-hmm. um which is achieved in different ways be it through your pmo team from um, the bid manager Uh, transitioning to the PM in delivery, um, or the the PM for delivery, joining the big team and influencing the delivery approach, there's many ways to cut that. Um, But improving the quality of the baseline deliverables and risk management. So that was all part of anticipation and continuity. Um, The second one was empowering to deliver. So making sure your bid and your project managers are positioned correctly in the organisation where they can truly have impact and providing them with all the necessary levers they need to make the difference. Closely associated with that as well is the the third one, support, that's about the senior management focus um, and, and supporting bids and project teams in delivery about good operational leadership, helping them work through the issues. Um, um, and but again, back, back to that empowerment, putting them in the right place, giving them the right levers, supporting them through it, you know, challenging the greens and supporting the reds in, in reporting terms, um, rather than just more and more controlling and monitoring. So that was the third one. Fourth one is transversal learning. Um, so develop transversal sharing. And that's difficult in a, in, a, in a big global complex organization, always looking for the lessons to be learned from the same or similar projects. Um, and, and it's, in my experience, it's never, never properly achieved by databases of stuff that people need to go and search around in and maintain. Uh, it starts to work if you do something that is you learn lessons, And because you do lots of projects of a similar nature, you either put the lessons into process so they become standard or you checklist your way through stuff every time you start a new one. That that works. But otherwise, you rely on people sharing knowledge, experience, or peer reviewing, um, phase reviews, um, project friends, you know, so people reaching out. You don't just call for peer reviews when there's a problem. You do it as part of your normal business. So that's the fourth one, transversal learning. And the fifth one was attracting and recognising. Um, attract and recognise the talents you need in the job family. Um, it, it can be, a, it can be a, a lonely and difficult place to be um, in a, in, as, a, as a project director in a big, diff, large, complex organisation on a large, complex project you really need to recognise, reward those core teams that are engaged in those major projects and, 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 and support them. So, and, and that that's a key part of attracting, retaining, developing um, the, the talents you need to deliver, you know, the, the, the larger programmes. Mm. So as we're not a platform, as Talism is not a platform business, um, that's quite a challenge for us.
1: Yeah, and, and just just working backwards from there, they're a great list. And uh, thanks for for giving us a bit of a summary. But um, working backwards, attracting and recognizing is probably the biggest challenge, given the amount of projects that are on. I know in the UK you guys are very busy, same as down here in Australia, and uh, there is a massive skills gap, not necessarily even capacity, but yeah. a skills gap across the board. How do you, how do you go about developing a, a plan or or kind of enacting? So getting to the how, you know, this is kind of the why, but you know, how do you get to the how of this?
3: Um, yeah. And, and interestingly, it's a, it's a good question because when, when this, the first cut of this presentation was put together, it was pre COVID times. Um, mm. When I, when, when I revisited it for the, for EVA 27, it was post COVID or emerging from COVID. And we actually, we actually spent some time talking about the challenges that, that it, that the, these times have brought the geopolitical scenario as well with Ukraine and everything else going on and inflation, yeah. um, the way people expect to work now. There's a whole manner of, of factors that 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 affect it. Um, um, but but first and foremost, within Talis, we're lucky. Um, we uh, um, we we have a we have a, an internal job market, and and it mm-hmm. reminding people of that um so we're, we're actually doing um i'm going to call it this there's three legs there's three legs on this stool um three legs on a milking stool if you like the first is internal mobility um and because of actually one of the benefits of post-covid times is that people are or the businesses not just tellers everybody's more willing to look at different ways of working hybrid working. So if you take is UK, and you look at the spread of the major sites from Crawley in the southeast, Templecombe in the southwest, uh, Bristol, um, Cheadle in the northeast, uh, in, in, near Manchester, um, Glasgow, Belfast. Um, they're, they're geographically very dispersed. Um, Typically, their specific, you know, the the business, the the actual, um, the businesses themselves develop footprints across those sites. So, and often they've locked people in, they've been captive audiences, if you like. So if you're a sonar expert and you work in in Temple Coon um, and you live in the southwest, there aren't many people pulling you away from that. Um, So the point I'm trying to make is there is a, there is a market, there's an internal market. Uh, job market for us and people are prepared to work more flexibly now. So that gives us more chance to um, leverage that internal job market and improve internal mobility. To do that, we need better talent review processes. So we've got a big focus on that at the moment to make sure that we are properly line managing people um, and putting a lot of time functionally into that talent review process to make sure people are getting the development they need we've got the information we need to profile the profiles we need so we can look for opportunities for people to almost enable our own kind of internal linkedin system if you like yeah so that's that's one leg on the stool that internal mobility works it means it's um we it means we've got to backfill so we've got a backfill process that's not completely it's not you can't do everything internal so we've set up resourcing accelerators in engineering and in bids and programs um so um getting because the job markets are very um very sensitive to the speed of response from i've been interviewed somebody wants to give me a job how quickly can you get that offer to them and get people onboarded? And it's that and, and the experience they go through in that process. Um, you may as well assume today that if you found somebody through an assessment centre and you want them, they're already holding an offer from another company as well. Mm, so yeah. it's the speed that you execute. So the re- resource accelerators, um, which we've, we've put a hell of a lot of effort into, um, uh, um, enabling those to happen there's a lot of work going in uh, to make them they don't they don't happen overnight and to start moving it's taken us a year to get them from um you know here's a blank sheet of paper what do we need to put in place it's taken us a year to get them anywhere near business as usual on a rolling basis by sub job family so you know one month we're doing it for p.m next month we're doing it for bids next month we're doing it for project controls um so that's the that's second leg of the stool um and then the third one is a, is a delivery academy. So working with um, the other ops functions, understanding the key capabilities that we need to develop, um, and uh, and internally um, um, giving people all of the um, taking cohorts of people. We've run the pilot this year. We now need to design it for service. So. We've, we focused on one on a capability generator called, um, you know, work package management. So that's because that's one of the key things that we need. The number of is is the um, is effective work package management, um, and and it's not just the it's not just the bid and project job family that are work package managers. It's engineering. Um, it can be procurement. So with engineering procurement, we've run a, a, a pilot of an academy this year which takes everybody from a basic competency to a um, next level of competency in work package management. So that's an internal development, a capability generator, um, and through strategic capability planning in the business, which is part of our yearly business cycle, we'll continue to work with operations, with engineering, with procurement, understand what capabilities we need to generate and use those capability generators to do it internally. That's the three legs all working in harmony. To um, that, that in its own right does not will not hit all of the attract and recognise buttons in that fifth lever. Um, that's also about recognising people in the operational scenarios, truly recognising them. It, it links back into that operational leadership piece of supporting. Um, it is is recognising what people are doing. And going through to deliver programs and making sure that's properly recognized
2: so, so as someone who's been responsible for the training and development needs in, in your role as um global bids and project director how, how do you go about identifying the learning and development needs and, and linking it to some of the things that you're saying there because some of the skill sets and cultures yeah you know i've worked in two Th- three different talus sites in the uk and one in France and they they're massively different between the three how, how what's your process for identifying those those needs
3: so um, that's a really good question martin um uh, and it's been it's been a real challenge I think're and it's been that's been a journey of some years actually um standardizing the way in which we assess, We sorry, we give people the ability to assess their competence objectively. So, um, we work with APM, we work with IPMA, um, as a a, as a a body. Um, so we look, we use the IPMA competencies. If we're in, if we're working with APM, we look for the equivalence as well. Um, it's not, which is not, that's not the difficult bit. Um, what we've had to do is is, is, is develop, develop an internal mechanism, standard way, and get everybody aligned to um, a competency assessment tool, if you like, that's easily accessible, meets all the um, um, uh, data protection requirements, um, is, is acceptable to different cultures, different, you know, the unions in France, perhaps a lot more difficult, more challenging than they are in in the UK. Um, so that all of those factors come into play. But but at the heart of it is is a simple framework. And, and actually, we use exactly that in that um, delivery academy and, and competency generator I've just described. That's the first thing that people entering that academy do is take themselves through an initial assessment of their competencies against an expected level informed by the IPMA, um, you know, competency framework. So it's not just us making it up, it's, it's got, it's got international credibility. Um, Then they get help to assess themselves against that, uh, uh, make sure that to normalise it, if you like, keep keep people grounded and not not panicking, and then understanding the the elements, the modules in the programme, that are going to address that, be it online, be it reflective sessions working together, uh, on-job training support from their, um, their local teams, but it, and, and their learning logs to do that. So this is the benefit of, of somebody being in the academy, is that um, if you just expected everybody to do that as just part of their day job, you know, you, not everybody has that discipline and focus. The cad- going through the academy over six or seven months gives you that focus. You start, you've got an end point, and there's things to achieve through it. So, but at the heart of it is that initial competency assessment um, and the gaps that need to be filled, and then do it again at the end and do the comparator and then and make sure that people are getting the right experiences.
2: But, so are you almost looking at, how do you assess the results at a global level then are you almost taking everyone's because i can understand that an individual level you know val and i i think we've done these these competency assessments a few times and we had needs that you know our our own personal learning and development needs but at a global level is there something that every year that particularly sticks out
3: um so i'm not sure where where we haven't got the the rollout matured enough to be looking at it um year on year but as we speak, um, from, from the work that I described from that original analysis, this transformation work got underway ahead of the pandemic. Um, and there were um, there were, there was a number of, there was about 30 key actions identified under those five levers for change. Um, post-pandemic, there was real focus given to um, six key areas um which we refer to as product and project efficiency essentials (PPE) one to six now one of those is um uh, is really focused on the right team with the right having the right team with the right competencies so um without trying to boil the ocean um if you remember the talis structure in terms of the global business units the major countries the business lines within them, the domains in the countries. Um, on, a, on a priority, on a risk, a risk basis, that product and project efficiency, PPE2, is being rolled out um, and on a quarterly basis, progress being assessed. One of the key actions in it is taking those, that competency assessment across key projects, key domains, orchestrated by kind of local reference, if you like, and there is, as we speak, a pooling of that analysis going on to understand where we've got the weaknesses, so if you asked me the same question a year's time. I'd probably be say yeah we've been doing this now for a couple of years and we're starting to get a, there's a good picture building on the things that we need to focus on, I think in some ways, and this sounds a bit cocky doesn't it it'll tell us stuff we already know. But you need you still need that evidence and data to support the discussions It's the why why do we need to do this stuff um as opposed to just saying well work package management and system engineering right across the life cycle are your achilles heels you've got to get them right
2: oh, definitely it's always going to evolve over time and it's, it's just yeah like you say it's, it's good having data to, to back up your assertions yeah um a, a couple more for me um so when you were talking about your review of um, competitiveness, were you looking externally as well as internally? Were you looking at what your competitors w- were doing? You know, were they trying to left shift, um, bringing um, the project managers into the bid phase, or were you, is it, was it very much self? How can we become more competitive as an organization?
3: Um, we didn't. We didn't do. We didn't look outside specifically on competitiveness. Concurrent with that analysis, Um, in fact, before it, 2016, we started the process. Um, We started to get involved in external benchmarking, um, a formal process of external benchmarking. Um, And we we actually were working with, at the time, um, four companies, Sistra, Technip, EDF and Renault. Um, EDF, because at the time when I went to France, Jean Bernard Levy had left Talas, and he was then the CEO of EDF. Um, and and he, he dragged me across in 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 France and uh, from Carpe Diem to talk to one of his his team about the things that we were doing. Anyway, short long story short is we we the four companies came together and had. An externally facilitated benchmarking process undertaking where we went to each other's companies, we chose, we agreed on a set of topics that were were core to the, each company's success, found the common ground, and we went and discussed those topics um, at each other's companies and saw how they did it. Visited the companies. It was really, really good process. So, one of the things informing that informed our views of uh, of, of the areas for improvement and really underpinned that um, our, our top down analysis said well 80% of your issues are this and, on, and less than 20% of processing tools um, related that external benchmarking reaffirmed that that because the feedback from the other four companies was wow Talis, you've got great processes and great tools yeah um, and so it wasn't so much, so it confirmed that as, that's not the area we need to focus on for competitiveness. It's, it's, the, it's the people stuff. Um, now, those four companies were very, very different, very, very different. And, and project management in Renault compared to what we do is like, the, they're worlds apart because of the approach to mm-hmm. take. Um, you know, uh, just as an example, so a project is a project is a project wherever you go. Well, not necessarily. If you're doing a project in Renault, you're you're doing you're dealing with all your risk all the way in the left hand side of the life cycle because you've got to get to a point where you're confident to set production line off and produce one thousand of those things and then you're, the the successes people buy them and want to buy more yeah so it's a different it's a different profile altogether so. Um, the the competitiveness bit is different in each company, different sizes, different complexity, different some and some worlds apart. Um, so, um, so very interesting, very interesting.
2: Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it must be really interesting going into some of these yeah. these companies. Um, one, one more, just on generally on change management as a in the infrastructure sector and and generally change management is something that a lot of people struggle with. And, you know, we've had many guests on our podcast talking about change, and there's a lot of brilliant resources out there. But as an industry, why are we struggling to really implement change management? Are are projects becoming more complex? Are we not focusing on the the human side? I'm I'm sure there's a lot more deeper down. But what's your view on the subject at the general level?
3: Are you talking change management changing the way people do things well, yes yes yeah not not change as in change management in the execution of a baseline yeah yeah okay just to be clear because some of the listeners will think ah change management <laughs> Yeah. <Yep. laughs> <Thank> a, <laughs> my project control system yeah. um um right what are the main challenges um I'm sitting. I'm pausing to think because that's that's a big that's a big question, um, and, and I'm and I'm thinking of the kind of people that will jump onto this and and think of what what are the key threads, and I'm really thinking right across the 26 years that I described earlier, what are the common themes um, that that you find because whenever you're recovering a program, if you're digging it, you're digging it out of a problem space back back to being properly under control and delivering that—that that is probably the worst scenario you ever have. Yeah, to change. Um, and normally you find teams that are in uh, you, they've been um chasing milestones, failing, chasing milestones, failing, chasing milestones, failing, and 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 you need to you need to stop. Um, so first and foremost, there's a need to recognize that there is a problem. Um, and, and if you pick up any change book, it will say, first of all, you've got to have a reason for change and explain why things need to change. Um, it, it might be there's a crisis. You know, you, you almost need a crisis to make the change. Yeah? If it's not a crisis, it's got to be blooming compelling to get people's attention. And why do we need to do stuff different? Depending on how bad the situation is, um, then they'll, they'll listen more quickly than, uh, uh, than in other circumstances. Then it's then there's very much it's very much down to um, I think leadership is the next piece that operational again hands-on operational leadership and and setting the tone about how things need need to be done. Um, you have to you have to model, you have to model that change and, and lead by example on what's expected. Um, but. Um, and I think so. So why, why do we struggle um, with that? I, I find a common theme in 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 many, many program recoveries or where big changes are needed. um, You need to to realise how much effort goes into making that change from a managerial perspective. And I think we we honestly, we underestimate it sometimes. If you're dealing with the deep-seated change, you'll end up with a circumstance where you probably end up with 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. Um, because you need to over the situation to get the delivery and to make the change until it becomes sustainable. Um, and that's not an overnight process. So, um, I think, so the reason for change, the operational leadership, and then, um, really, really appreciating how much effort will go into it to, to make that, to make, to make it stick, um, becomes very difficult. Um, it's, it's even more challenging in a company, a large company, any company, talis is a good example. You, you mentioned it earlier, you've worked on four sites in the UK and one in France. Very, very different cultures on the sites because they do different things, different cultures evolve. Um, and, and therefore you need to be quite specific. You, you might have a, a generic change that you want each site to adopt But make sure you really truly engage with the people, explain why and what their specific needs are in making that change. Yeah. Um, Mm. The best example I have, and I think back across the 26 years, was that um, when I was working at Fujitsu. uh, I probably can't say which program it was on, but it was, it was a private, it was in the private sector. Um, and I joined a program well, well into its delivery. Um, but there was still the original timeline of delivery to deliver, if that makes sense, when I joined. Um, and I was thinking, I think I was the seventh project director at the time. Um, and. The single biggest failing was um, it was it was a transformation programme, it was a desktop transformation. And what hadn't happened was the user engagement, the um, so Fujitsu were delivering a change into the, this organisation. The organization, the customer part of the organization, had insisted on keeping the business engagement task. And it was a global change that had to happen. And the end users were just insufficiently engaged on the why and what they needed. Um, and you were trying to make such an ex- such a massive change to the way they operated. Um, the, without that engagement, it was impossible. And that's why I mean, I think um, if people are familiar with the, the um, one of what I think is one of the best project management methodologies out there managing successful programmes. That's why in in the recommended organisation in MSP, you have a change manager at the same level as the project director reporting into the senior responsible officer, because the business change lead has a foot in both camps, both the um, with the end users and the project delivering. So they're the conduit between it, and it, it's that it's that engagement that's absolutely key.
1: Mm. Well, that's great, and uh, thanks, Tony, for sharing that. I think that was a really good overview and and some detail there. I, I, the other one I had, which was around transversal sharing, I think it was a really really powerful one. We've had a few guests come on the show and talk about the various types of sharing methods. And it is hard, as you know, Tony, you mentioned, you know, when, when you do have teams at scale, how do you ensure there's that, that kind of reach across the bench that people are collaborating, that people are sharing stories and learning lessons, wow. as you mentioned. Um, and we talked about the, the value of sense-making and storytelling in general and how, you know, it can't necessarily be defined or quantified in, in data. It's one of those things, and I think the the PMI do a good job, and a few other companies send out surveys to get this qualitative narrative from some of the guys on the ground, the PMs, the project controllers, the guys that are, you know, living it and breathing it every day. Um, how do you capture? What's your view on storytelling, or at least sense making, in a in a in an environment like a large project where you want to carry forward? And I guess there is a large part of that which would be competitive, right? Is to understand what we did right, what we did wrong, how we can improve in the future. What's the, what's your what's your view on that, and how how could we capture that more effectively, maybe?
3: Um, so, it, the, what we've been um, what we've been progressing um, over a number of years, or what, what I've seen work well in different companies, and we're on our own journey in talents to do it, is is that. The, the knowledge is vested in in people and uh, you know, i often refer to them as greybeards if you will um the people that are able to tell the stories and relate their experiences um and the biggest thing for competitiveness for me is is about deliverability uh, it, it's not it's not just about the price of doing things it's the uh, um it's it's the having the confidence in an organization that you get delivery and building up that trusted confidence in delivery, which means when we are left shifting things now, as I described earlier, we're looking at deliverability as much as winnability. Yeah. Um, And that that for me is, um, what it's all about. We want to do that in as competitive ways we can, but we need to do it in a deliverable manner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Competitiveness is not just about the price. Now that, that deliverability um, can only be assessed by um, people with the right, the right experience, asking the right questions, relaying, uh, relay, tell, you know, explaining their stories of how, how it will play out, um, whether it's exactly the same or like experiences that's what goes into establishing your baselines in the first place. Mm. So we're, we're doing um, um, for a number of years now, but it's becoming more and more, um, more and more the way of doing things. And in, in the UK now, I'm part, I have a team of two halves. Um, one, one is in that people, process, tools, capability improvement and drive, but we also have a dedicated team, a delivery assurance team. Sometimes they're called tigers at had, had the same when I was working in, in, in the group. Um, so what we're able to do now um, is because we've invested the time and, and, uh, and money in putting those two, two parts of the team together, it means we can continue to work on both bits. Um, if you don't invest in that, you, you, you can do one or the other. You can do some capability improvement, but you can't go and help businesses launch and dig them you know, or, or address problems. Um so, within that delivery assurance team, we've got a bunch of um experienced people who are now working in the in the u k as an example. We've got twelve businesses um mm-hmm. twelve individual businesses, and so that that team uh which comprises nine nine people um they've they develop relationships with the domains. They're not hard and fast. Must work here, must or what it want, and not not for others, but but they're developing, comp, you know, regular relationships, but and getting pulled in to help early in the life cycle to help with what we refer to as baseline validation. So baseline validation has a set of, um, here's a good starting point. There's a baseline validation checklist. So we're we're working with the teams. to to thoroughly check all the right things are happening as they're preparing for and then executing the bid. So coming into the final offer gates, we've got independent assurance of all of the right things having been done to set the baseline using that broader experience. Um, You can go a step further and in that left hand bit of the lifecycle start to establish a peer review team. So Um, So that during execution, you've got peer review teams that come with uh, deep experience of each discipline, project management, systems, engineering, procurement, um, uh, um, quality. And so we bring teams together um, with an independent chairman suitably experienced to work with project project directors um, uh, catch the leads and bid managers if we're doing it really early in the life cycle um, but more often now it's programs in flight get them peer review teams together particularly for the big complex programs get them an independent review chairman who can work with the project become the project director's friend um, and it's the same then for the heads of disciplines in the programs so those peer reviewers are not turning up because there's a problem they're coming up to share their share their experience, share their advice, pull together an output that says, right, we think you can improve here, here, and here as you approach this next big, this, the, this, the start of the next major phase of the programme. Um, and, and the plan would be to bring them back in a year, or as needed, if there's another phase change coming up to, to assure that they're ready for those phase changes. But in between times, if it works well, the peer reviewers become friends to the project So Solution Engineering Manager might pick up the phone and say, we've got this this problem, we've got some options to work through, would appreciate you just coming down and checking, you know, just bringing a clean pair of eyes and your experience to check this. That's the way you spread the experience. That's the real transversal learning. It's really powerful. Has it been
2: easy for within the organisation to develop those relationships because people, there may be a perception that they're being spied on people...
3: Like Absolutely. to manage
2: their own issues, yeah. particularly on in certain parts of the business. Yeah, how do you go about getting that message across that they they are there to help?
3: Um, you have to dump you it's, you you bang on, Martin, and it, and it's because typically in years past peer reviews, tiger teams pitching up, they only pitched up because corporates sent them in because there was a big problem and you were you were in the poo, right? So left shift the idea and start to demonstrate, and we start to demonstrate the real benefits. In the UK, that delivery assurance team was being established a bit over a year ago now. So I didn't really have, um, I didn't really have an idea of what, how things would play out this next year um, with facing off against 12 businesses in the UK. Um, It could have been at one extreme. I was having to you know shoulder barge the doors into the businesses down to get people in and say look they can help or at the other extreme can't cope with the demand <laughs> and actually it's come up it's come out nearer the, the nearer to the, the the latter um where the team have been been really busy um made and made a big difference on a lot of the work that the baseline work and bidding work we've been doing this year on some big stuff so it's protecting the future um mm-hmm. And uh, other other businesses do the same. The other syst- other businesses like like Tallies have similar processes. Um, and uh, what I've just described was very much the way that you know people in BA systems will recognise a lot of what I've just said. Phase reviews, um, having a phase review chairman, set of phase reviewers, exactly the same process. Um, mm. It's life cycle management and the best use of peers and experience to give bids and programs best chance of success so it's not something we've just made up it's bringing learning from from other companies and 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 over years of experience yeah that's awesome i think if you just if you talk about these
1: levers just number four and five if you could just achieve those two i think you'd you'd break the bank in terms of transformational value across the business um and i think Um, what we're saying with yeah with these five levers we're saying there they're almost um continual It's almost like a part of a continuous improvement type model where you probably never get to a point where it, it's static it's always going to be live it's all going to need a feedback model it's yeah. going to need improvement it's going to need challenging and the, and um yeah. and pushing and, and all that kind of jazz so there's a lot of energy invested and effort that goes into these types of these these initiatives if you like um i wanted to get into uh, cuz i know we we'll run out of time otherwise cuz me and martin can go on for hours tony i don't know about yourself but I wanted to get into supporting teams. I think you talked about something called operational leadership. Uh, one, what is operational leadership from your perspective? Um, and then, and then, how how exactly do you see supporting teams? Because I think one of the challenges on on particular specific projects, big projects, is a line of fire. So you find that um, you know we have this kind of monthly, month in, month out, uh, two week cycle of updating, two weeks of reviewing and getting smashed, and then back into the system. And what I've what I've observed across various companies, particularly ones where there's a lot of pressure, so the, the big projects, is that uh, the project manager is is kind of hung out to dry a lot of the time, and and arguably there is some some of that that is is real. It should be they're accountable, and responsible for a lot of the work and delivery. Um, but I I you know from a from a flipping that switch to supporting, how are we actually supporting these leaders, um, and and enabling them to be better at or more proficient at their role.
3: Um, so what, what do I mean by, by support? Um, I could, I'd expand the title and I said, the environment you need to create is challenging, but supportive. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's really key. It needs to be challenging and, but realistic and supportive. Um, operational leadership, the term I, is is a term I, I use, um, because what operational leadership is not is um, is controlling and just just controlling and monitoring in what you described as that line of fire. so mm. you cannot just rely on the monthly drumbeat and business rhythm of of um, uh, your your business cycle of your your, your project control cycles of the costs coming in, the analysis happening and the project management review taking place and the PM getting the bollock in and sent away and right, you know, see you again next month. Mm. If there are problems that is not going to solve it um, because it just, it, it, um, it, it just wears people down. And then you're back into attract and recognize problems because who wants to work in that environment? Yeah. Yeah. um so the, the, the challenging supportive bit is recognising that you no, – no problem no, – rarely, rarely do projects go smoothly all of the time. They all have their – however well they're planned, long executed, they'll all have the you know, typical project problems in delivery. Um, and, it, and it can be a bit of a lonely place if, you're, if you don't feel, albeit challenged, but fully supported – and in the right position in the organization, empowered to deliver it, um, and given the things you need to to do it. That operational leadership for me is is about leaders um, getting alongside the teams, understanding, really understanding the issues and giving them the things they need to solve the problems. Now that could be, a bit of a, a bit of advice and counseling <laughs> um it, it could be sharing some experience it could be sitting down next to people at a desk showing them based on your experience or getting them around a whiteboard it definitely means a lot of listening yeah mm. um, and a lot more listening than direction um, there are there's five there's five things sorry it's always not always five i promise but there's there's five things that drive my um, my kind of my, 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 um, if I have it, a guiding mind, it's got five things in it. And the first one is about simplification. What is it we're trying to achieve? And whether that's at a total programme level or in a work package areas, are we clear what we're trying to achieve here? Simplify it, make sure it's understood. Align people to it and, and help to get that alignment. So um, the individual, their, their teams, they're aligned to it. And if there's problems in getting that, then that, to that position needs to be addressed. Um, people always, right? So look after the people. It's the people that are going to, that need the help. It's them that's doing the delivery. Look after them. Um, be flexible because stuff's going to change daily, weekly, monthly. Stuff will change. And if you have to go around the Simplify, this is what's happening now get everybody aligned, make sure the people are happy, but be, be responsive, be, be flexible, help them to do that. Um, and then just getting the basic doing the basics. Well, and if they need help to do the basics, well, so everybody's doing that, all the fundamentals of the work package management. So we can create that top level picture, give them the support they need to do that. Um, mm. more monitoring and controlling going to solve the problems. So, this, for me, that operational leadership um, and, and being an ex-military man, you probably remember Adair's model of task, team and individual. Those five things I've just described in my guiding mind are very much aligned to the task, the team and the individual, Adair's model. Um, and that, that, for me, is what the operational leadership is, particularly when programmes are in difficulty. That's where most of your energy goes umbrellaing and protecting the team and driving those things. Um, and and it won't happen overnight, but that's the way you start to get the delivery. That's why, and then and you need other leaders around you that are helping on a big program. You need other leaders around that are doing the same thing. And all those leaders need to understand that it's the end of the day. They'll get to their inboxes because most of the day is spent with the people doing that stuff.
1: Yeah, no, that's just great. I, I think we called the... You know that that umbrella um, term is is really good to explain to listeners because I think sometimes we share a lot with our teams, and whilst that seems to be a good idea, I've seen it actually be affect teams in a negative way because uh, not everyone can manage that pressure, and that 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 is actually an acquired skill as well. Yeah. We used to call it the the weatherman. So if you can manage the weather, uh, yeah. looking down at your team uh, yeah. in a, in a sense that you're you're protecting them from the storm. As such, yep. and, and that pressure can also be really valuable, but but again, you know, I think with remote working as well, you know, if we if we apply the kind of post COVID scenario to it, yeah, how's that changed? Uh, and from your perspective,
3: um, well, when I went into COVID, um, I was a year into helping a very important and very difficult program recover and get on with what was an important delivery for the UK um we were a year into uh, recovery and before we all we had 250 people working on the project then at, at the time all co-located in one place where you could wrap your arms around everybody every day if needed but we could literally ring a bell at the end of the at the end of the office and get everybody down for a team chat you know um to suddenly then work at, about two-thirds of the people ended up having to work remotely then mm. um, and and desperate desire before hotels and things you could stay before you could get back into hotels um, we were we, we had to do some some pretty crazy things to get um, uh, to get people around around a whiteboard when when things when the chips were down because you there's nothing can replace that getting people in the room and, and the, the interaction you need and the sparking off one another. You, you can do so much on, on video conferences, on WhatsApps and chat to, to try and keep those lines of connection open. But there's nothing else like getting rid of all of those different lines of comms and just having face-to-face time um, when, when there's difficult scenarios um, to work through and to get true alignment. So back to those five guys my you you to get people really engaged to understand what the chant to simplify do we all understand to get the alignment to make sure you can look after people that that um in this hybrid working um in fact on that very program it was possible to do an apples and apples comparison of some stuff we did before COVID, and some stuff we did during COVID, and we were um, and in some in some instances we were forty percent inefficient. And it was measurable. In wow. uh, doing the same task took forty um, percent. Um, ten it was ten weeks versus six weeks, if you like, um, uh, it, because of the lines of communication just weren't there. Over the shoulder tap, Martin. It's your turn now. Can you do this, Val? Can you approve that? Um, mm. because then, then you. It, however hard we tried to exploit the technology, the comms. You know, so, and I think it was probably worse than forty percent because um, we were having to work pretty much every weekend as well to, to make up the difference. Um, that, oh. that that didn't show itself necessarily in the figures. And in, uh, in
2: that scenario, how did you manage that second lever on empowering to deliver to to the teams?
3: Um. So um, we we kind of split, we divided and conquered. As I say, it was two thirds of the people that went had to work out the office because of separation and room and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. And um, uh, you know there was and there was a difference between the first few months of lockdown versus a year into it, where we were understanding and working with the restrictions better, etc. So, but in that 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 year of 2020 um there was those in there was those out and then there was those that were out going in on a frequent basis um uh, and it was a case of really optimizing that and giving everybody the need giving everybody what they needed to just to achieve the best outcomes um that in, in terms of um your your question martin was about that empowering to deliver um I think it wasn't, I don't think COVID necessarily affected the empowerment so much um, that that organisational, where do you sit? Are you in the right place in the organisation? Have you got the visibility you need? Uh, Are people hearing you? Maybe communications, you know, communications and whatever levers people needed to just to be able to do their job. And and we did some exceptional things um, in that period of time. Um, So... It, it was possible. It was just different. It was different. We had to do things differently. Did um, it
2: almost require more leadership in a way than it than it would when you're all sat in, in the office together?
3: Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, as we left the office on the eighteenth of March, twenty twenty, we we just literally that morning said, right, if we we're going to need a an eleven o'clock daily call. Right, everybody's every every one of you lot is on the phone at eight o'clock it's, it's at 11 o'clock for that one hour. So and it was just a case of it was a, it was just discipline and drumbeat and, um, and we, were, we were one part of a, a bigger enterprise then as well. So it was 11 o'clock internally. It was five o'clock every day um, with, with the enterprise to, to maintain the alignment. And it actually remains probably the most aligned enterprise in project delivery that I know of today because the program's still going it's got a next it's it's, in it's it's approaching its final stages but it's um it 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 is the I've ne- it's the most aligned I've seen an enterprise from end customer through all of the industry partners if somebody moves or has to make a decision in one place everybody's immediately aware of the ram- the knock-on effects and ramifications on the others so um yeah uh, out of what was a very difficult situation a few years ago it's probably an exemplar in the way of working in many respects
1: mm. it brings me st- i mean into the detail and i think martin touched on it but this i think this is probably the hardest part is about uh, from my experience is is empowering people because mm. it's not necessarily something you can do at to a group you you can you can you could Tony Robbins them you could motivate them, but motivation is temporary, and so empowerment is different yeah it's a choice, and uh, you know it's the you know w- what do you do to get out of bed in the morning you know what sparks that that internal fire because I think yeah if we try too hard it sometimes comes off as disingenuous or inauthentic or pushy um it, it's very easy to go over or overstretch uh, or overreach perhaps uh when you talk about empowerment and um people want to feel that they have choice in these discussions when they talk about empowerment yeah. and inclusivity yeah. and entitlement and all these things. Where do you start with this? Because it's a, uh, it's a tricky road, right, Tony? Um, it,
3: it does, uh, but I'm, I'm in a little bit of danger of repeating myself um, and, and back to the point I made about you being an ex-military person, task, task team, an individual, um, um people don't work for organizations, they work for people. Yeah. Um, and then it's always back to that operational leadership um, and and creating the environment. Um, yeah, empowering people to deliver. Um, why do people get out of bed every morning and go to that project, which is really difficult and really challenging? Because they want to succeed and, and they want to succeed and make their contribution because of the leadership, the team leaders they're working under and the, the the overall project leadership they're working for. It's about the environment you create um, and, and it's an, an esprit de corps. Um, so mm. if you can create that real esprit de corps with good operational management, uh, however, and, and in the face of adversity, teams, teams do remarkable things. Um, and, and start to adopt the attitude you know what we're going to do this despite x y and z we're going to do this um, and yeah. that, that's the attitude you're always trying to create but it is because people work for people and they want to do it not because they've been ordered to do it they want to do it for the people they work for
1: yeah i agree with your point around uh, people work for people not necessarily companies and whilst companies are important from a I yeah. guess that goes back to point four or 5 around attractiveness and, and retaining uh, interesting people. Yeah. If you've got interesting projects, which you know, your group definitely does, then yeah. you, you do naturally attract um, yeah. a good caliber of people. Mm-hmm. But the challenge, I think there's probably another layout down. And I'm picking on this, Tony, because it's, it's a really hard one, I guess, for a lot of people. We get a lot of feedback uh, out there in the field and you know, making people feel stronger, making, making people feel like they have the choice to lead and, and mm-hmm. um, have the permission perhaps even to do that. Um, what else? What, what could we say? What advice would you give to someone out there, Tony, that perhaps works at a company, doesn't feel empowered, uh, has listened to these five levers and gone, "Well, this is really interesting stuff. How do I be part of the movement? How do I make this happen?"
3: It's, it's, don't don't fear um, don't fear making mistakes. Um, you you have to try. Um, and I think if, if people if, if people aren't afraid, they aren't afraid to fail, they will learn. and if and if you're not working in an organization that is accepting of that, move on mm. seriously. Um, um, you know if you if if you're really frustrated with something uh, and that could be some that could be a key issue that does is frustrating somebody because there isn't an environment in which they can learn um, because they, they don't feel that they're able to, to do things and fail and learn and, and then not make the same mistakes again. And, and that's the biggest form of empowerment I think you can give anybody is creating an environment where they feel that they can do, try. It's not a problem if you fail. Um, if you can't create that environment, then you, you won't truly empower people. And if you're on the receiving end of that, um, and you and you can't make the change, then you need to you need to look for different parts of the organisation to work for, or even different organisations. Do, do you ever get any
2: statistics in your job about attrition and reasons for it, and, and linking it to those those levers? Yeah. Is yeah. that I'm guessing that must be quite a difficult conversation if if you are seeing that whilst you know all those endeavors going into to really changing and and transforming the capability of the organization.
3: There's a lot there's a lot of statistics flying around at the minute because of the that the the external environments um so you, you see a lot the the HR guys are sharing a lot of really interesting stuff with us. Um the one that really sticks with me is um and it it's very pertinent to the younger the younger generations the the sort of the, the demographics of 25 to 35 is that um it's money isn't the main motivation it's the ways of working and and learning is is far in excess of um the the money the money side of things money does come into it and people are moving companies just for extra money um, but, but the one biggest, the single biggest thing you can do to um, impact um, or reduce attrition is give people the ability to move and develop within the organizations. Um, so Talis is well-placed to do that. You know, and, and other large, complex companies that have different things going on in different sectors um, It's allowing people to develop and learn. And then it's linked back to, to Martin's Sorry, to Val's question a minute ago. Um, how do um, how do you create that environment? Um, and being being able to fail and learn, um, and and then do that, move on, working in the bits of an organisation. Learning and development and movement are are absolutely key to key to attrition uh, or management of attrition.
2: I suppose that links quite nicely to the other lever, the continuity and anticipation, and anticipating both the business needs and and what needs to to, to happen yeah, to be successful.
3: Very much the anticipation bit particularly um we need to be looking not just months, years ahead, it's that strategic capability yeah. planning. Um, and in a global organization where you're looking to staff projects. In you know you might be doing a program. You guys remember the, the transport programs in the Middle East going on, where you've got you you have got they're not just multi entity multi business entities in a country, they're multi entities across multi countries. <laughs> that they're, they're in they're in truly international projects, um, bringing capability from different countries to a country of destination, and uh, um, that anticipation of. How do you create the workforces? What is your industrial strategy? Um, what capabilities do we need? Um, because they're not always there locally. So you've got to find people that want with the right capabilities that want to go there. And that doesn't happen overnight. You need to be thinking 18 months, two years ahead things like that, while you're actually bidding for the stuff in many cases. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, difficult uh, environment, challenging environments.
1: It is a challenging environment. And I think we're all kind of figuring out our ways post COVID, how we deal with, you know, as you said, particularly the younger demographic, um, looking for, I guess, different ways of working, which we are probably not used to, you know, you you mentioned just having everyone in in a room and having the huddle and it was great. You could tap, you know, John on the shoulder or take Martin for a coffee and you could talk to the client directly because most times we were co-located with the client. And uh, that allowed for better relationships and a stronger understanding of what was happening both sides. Um, it, it helped limit kind of commercial disputes. So I think in my view, but, it, but as we kind of disperse and there is some values in that, as you said, you can, you can access untapped talent and, and, and acquire people who, who may be more regional, uh, who have the skills, but not necessarily are in the right location, which is great. The, the downside is that you're spending far more time um, unconnected um, whilst Teams and Zoom and all these great tools that we're on now are, are fantastic, you you can do damage, I think, as well to to culture, to people's quality and perhaps their meaningful uh, fulfillment in, in in job prospects, such as working within a company and on a project. If you are back to back in in meetings online for, you probably do this, Tony, uh, with your French counterparts, but you know from from early hours in the day to whenever they finish at night, yeah. Um, it's one of those unavoidables, but you, we must anticipate that that's going to be a problem or a challenge at scale when we talk about you know strategic workforce planning or looking for that that the right fit for people um, across across all countries in the world any kind of views on that what's your perspective
3: on that um, yeah I, I it's it it's all about finding the ways of working that work for the people the organization the team um I think I've um the, the biggest impact for me that I think we are, we really need to be conscious of is it, it sounds to, to some it might sound really fantastic. I just work from home all of the time, and 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 that you can question the the efficiency. Um, some jobs can be done just as efficiently, completely remotely, without question. Yeah. Um, some jobs require the other extreme where. Or, or specialist jobs in tooling and things like that require people to be there on the site can't do it at home. And, and there's there's general um, whenever interactions between people in alignment you, you need a level of it if it's not every minute of every day, it's sufficient to keep that connection. Mm. I actually find I've found working at home a lot. I, it doesn't um, I don't look forward to that. Because I find days working at home are more draining than a day in the office. Because you start and it it, it ends up back to back. And I I looked at this a lot over what two or three years now. And and it's not rocket science. To me, it's because uh, when you're in the office, you're sitting there, um, you're moving between meetings, you're catching up on emails or whatever. It's all of the interactions, the opportune interactions that happen because you're in the office. Um, I'm walking to get a coffee and I bump into you and I say, oh, how are you mm. getting up? such and such? Yeah? That's a two-minute conversation while the coffee's preparing in the machine, mm. right? If I think, right, I need to catch up with Val, I'm going to put five, I'm going I'm, free in the diary. Before you know it, that's 30-minute slot in the diary block. So the diary becomes like a game of Jenga. Yeah, Tetris, maybe if you remember Tetris. Yeah. <laughs> Little computer games. Seriously, that's what it becomes like till so you end up with a day that is from seven o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night, just back-to-back meetings. Um, and he and can be I could be sitting here in this office now, and I've got four or five different lines of communication. And and you're trying to use them all because naturally I'm trying to I'm trying to maintain the same level of connectivity with everybody that I would if I was in the office and people, the opportunistic interactions were happening alongside the meetings that were arranged. Um, And it's a hell of a lot more stressful in my experience. So we Mm. need to be conscious that that's going on. But the biggest thing, the biggest thing we're, we're missing out on, particularly for people in their earlier careers, is... When you're working, sitting in an open plan office or in a team area or whatever, whatever the setup is, you don't realize how much you're absorbing just from the environment around you. Not what mm-hmm. you're working on this at the time. It's the other conversations that you're part of, the things that you're hearing. You learn an awful lot just through absorbing the way of doing things and people exchanging the experiences around you. And that, that's the, I think that's one of the biggest dangers. Uh, and because that's very confidence-building stuff. Um, and with so much remote working, um, I, I think that's a skill um, or an environment that people will miss out on.
1: Exactly. Well, we did talk about it. You know, if you... The art of communication can't necessarily be taught online. I mean, I I talk about that whole reading a room type of thing. I mean, it, probably one-on-one, it, it works. You would agree, Tony? You could probably have yeah. a one-on-one teams and yeah. be fine. But when it becomes four, five, 10 people on a call, it's, uh, it's almost impossible to understand exactly. nonverbal kind of gestures and whether you're losing the, the interest of the room, they're falling asleep, they're multitasking. I mean, one of the challenges I see is, you know, whilst we're all talking here and we're paying attention to each other, a lot of the times people are multitasking. So now you're kind of getting a, a, a kind of a third of their attention span. They're kind of listening, but it's like listening to music. They're they're, yeah. they're waiting for sound bits and and, and a way to respond. But mm-hmm. I think for the younger generations, especially if you're trying to aspire to be something you're looking to succeed in a organization, you have to rub shoulders with people. And the, yeah. the, the art of networking as well and connecting yeah. with people genuinely will allow you to be front of mind when considerations such as promotions yeah. and other opportunities come available. And yeah. again, I, I work with a lot of consultants in my space, Tony. And one of the things I talk about is, is having a, that, that social active network, not necessarily just online, but, mm. but going out and meeting people in your industry, in the community, um, paying it forward, you know, working with them, supporting them is another part of, I think, empowerment as well.
3: Yeah, 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 I agree with you, Far.
1: Great, well, we, we, we're closing or coming close to the end of the podcast. We do have one more feature, Tony. It's very, very easy. You'll love it. It's a, it's a quick pop quiz all about yourself, mate. I'll hand over to Martin for the, uh, for the five questions. Yep,
2: okay. Um, so if you're ready, let's dive straight in. Uh, question one, what's your one piece of advice for people new to the project management profession? Um, one
3: piece of advice. Um, Gosh, that's a hard question. And it's supposed to be a quick pop quiz. <laughs> One bit of advice. Um, uh, learn something every day. Thanks. Uh,
2: secondly, what's the biggest misconception about project management?
3: Biggest misconception is that the principles are the principles, and it doesn't matter what environment you're in. Um, I, I, I learned that through my own experience. Um, certain domains require domain domain knowledge to be a successful PM.
2: Definitely. Mm. Uh, number three: Are good leaders born or made?
3: I think there are natural leaders. It comes to some more naturally than others. Um, but I think there's more in in the making of them than just through um, just through just through natural
2: birth. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, number four, what would be your book recommendation to our listeners?
3: Who moved my cheese? Mm. That's a good one. You know, Mm. look it up. Um,
2: and finally, if you had your time again, would you go straight into the armed forces, project management, something different?
3: Uh, no, no regrets, the armed, the armed forces, uh, in many ways, uh, it sounds trite, doesn't it? But in many ways, the armed forces made me what I am today. so yeah, i wasn't I wasn't a born leader, but I think um, yeah, leaving home, leaving home at the age of eighteen and going to going to Dartmouth Naval College and the eleven years in the Royal Navy that followed has a huge bearing on my leadership style today. Mm. Mm.
1: yeah, I agree. Well, thanks, thanks, Martin, for doing the, the pop quiz. Usually, Dale wraps up for us, but I'll do it today just, just for sakes. Uh, but a big, massive thank you to Tony Walsh. Uh, thank you for being so patient with us and enjoying and interacting on these questions. I mean, it was a great conversation around these five levers. Really appreciate your time. Any final thoughts for our listeners, Tony?
3: Um, I think um, be brave, be courageous. Um as, a, as a, When you're working in the project world, whether you're bidding, whether you're in project delivery, um, do the basics right. And if you see the organ, organization around you not doing the right thing, don't be afraid to be courageous. You'll be surprised at the impact you'll have on others around you. Yeah, brilliant.
2: Martin, final thoughts? Uh, nothing to add. No, thanks for sharing your your knowledge, insights, and experience. Been been really good. Thanks a lot.
3: Good. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it. So, um, and uh, for all the people that 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 I know out there that that pick up this and listening, wish you all a merry Christmas and best wishes for the new year.
1: Good point. Yeah, we're getting close, aren't we? Uh, yeah. I've got to get myself organized. Some more Christmas shopping to do. <laughs> but, folks, that's all time we have for. Uh, if you like what you heard, you can pay it forward by sharing a link to this episode and get it out there for Tony on your favorite social media. A massive thank you again to Tony and thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive and have fun doing it. From myself and Martin, it's bye for now. Project Shadow supports and is a member of Zero Construct. Zero Construct is a new working group that wants to lower carbon construction. Not everyone will be aware, but construction contributes to around 12 to 15% of total
0: carbon emissions. This is a staggering amount and we need to reduce it. We are a growing community of people that want to help make this change. Everyone is welcome. Whether you're an engineer, contractor or consultant, you just need to want to make a difference.
1: Our aim is to grow a network of experts so we can all learn from each other and make a positive impact in the places where we work. We'll do this by sharing knowledge and making it accessible in engaging ways.
0: To join us and find out more, please visit zeroconstruct.com and register as a member. Thank you, and we look forward to speaking with you soon.
1: For more information, blogs, or to support our charities, visit projectchatterpodcast.com. And if you would like to sponsor the podcast, get in touch
0: via our website. You can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast. views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organisation, committee or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organisation, company or individual.